Hello, I'm Derek Weekly, and welcome to episode 140 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, uh, whether you're on YouTube or the podcast platforms and all that. Someone said to me during the week, actually, about the podcast platforms that I should be saying, if you like the podcast, you should give us a rating or something like that. Um, so I said it. Uh, t- thanks for your support, obviously, on Instagram and, and Facebook and all those sort of things. And a big thanks to Conor Ruach for coming on last week to talk about spirituality, introducing the Irish language to spirituality, which was something that, you know, was completely uh, new to me. So I learned a lot of that episode. And Conor had a great manner about him, very calming, which is very important. Um, but anyway, let's get on with this week. I want to introduce uh, my guest today. He's a professor of history at, I think I've mispronounced this uh, in my head, Jolet Junior College in Illinois, and is the author of Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago in the 1960s. John Lyons, how are you doing? Uh, hello, Derek. I'm doing very well. I, I, I will pronounce the name just so we can get it uh, right. Mm-hmm. Joliet. Oh, I wasn't even close, you know that? Because no, I was you like... were close. You had Jolet. I was but doing that thing where the French wouldn't pronounce the T at one point, and I was like, Joliet. No, we, we pretty much in America, we do say Joliet, and it, it's obviously named after the uh, French explorer, so. Ah, oh, see you there. Joliet. Already learning, John. Uh, right, but, uh, yeah, um, I want to say anything you learn on this podcast, but we'll <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I don't know about that, but I want to also say with kind of behind the scenes thing, John is a very happy man today. He's a big City fan. They just thumped Manchester United 6-3. I think we're all happy about it, to be honest. I think most of the world is happy about this. I can't imagine many people who are unhappy at Man United getting trounced. Yes, I, I agree 100%. Um, John, we always start in the same area. Um, could you give us a short history of your upbringing, please? Yes, I was actually... Uh, my parents are from Ireland, mm-hmm. and uh, they're from uh, west of Ireland, Cork and Mayo, rural Ireland. And uh, they uh, moved to uh, England uh, in the interwar period. And uh, they met in uh, England, got married. And I've got a brother, older brother and an older sister. And uh, we were brought up in uh, North London. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to uh, Catholic schools. My uh, secondary school was uh, an all-boys school. And it was uh, run by Christian brothers. Uh, for the, you probably know a familiar yep. brothers, but for those that aren't, they usually send a shiver up the spine for those that have had any contact with them. And uh, so anyway, that gives you an idea. So I didn't do I hope my students aren't listening to this because I didn't do very well at school at all. I did very badly. And so I left as soon as I could when I was 16. And uh, I went into I was a welder for 12 years of construction. And then uh, I actually went to college pretty late. I went to college when I was 28. And uh, I went to uh, college in Manchester. And uh, the reason for that is uh, obvious from what you said earlier. So I can go and see Man City play every week. Great educational reason to go to college. Yeah. But anyway, and then uh, I, uh, when I was there, I was, I was doing a, a, a degree in uh, the social sciences. So I was doing history, politics, uh, sociology and economics and then uh, one year we did a student exchange and the student exchange was to uh, Detroit so I lived in Detroit for a year and I was in a history class it was a US history class and who should I meet but my wife my future wife I should say and uh, so I came back to uh, the UK and I did a master's degree at uh, Warwick University and then uh, I moved to uh, America to do my PhD. And I did that in Chicago. So we, we lived in Chicago. And when I finished my uh, PhD, I got this job in uh, Joliet Junior College. And I teach their uh, American and uh, British history. So that's, that's a, what it A very... Uh, yeah, thorough. history. Yeah. Um, oh, was that thorough? I thought that... that uh, I'll go. No, uh, but I like the, the, the span from from where your parents came from that we don't normally get that kind of you know uh, thoroughness is that a word yeah i guess oh, thank you I, I appreciate that derek that's all right um I myself has been reasonably thorough <laughs> it's fair fair but yeah i mean it's a strange combination because i've got irish parents and then uh, i was born and brought up in uh, england and now i've lived basically half my life in america so you know i have a commitment to the three places really yeah, I always remember being, when I was younger, being brought up in London. You know, we had a lot of Irish. We used to go to Ireland uh, every couple of years. We had a lot of Irish relatives, and of course, they used to call me the Plastic Paddy. It's a great, it's a great nickname, isn't it? I don't think, I'm not sure it's PC these days to I say that. 
I, I think only Irish people. Yeah, I mean, Irish people or people with an Irish lineage can say it, but I don't know anybody else outside of that can. Right. Gotcha. So you're, you're fine. But, but you get the idea. I mean, they kind of thought I wasn't really Irish. But yeah. then when you live in England and you're surrounded by Irish people, you go to Catholic church, Catholic schools, you're not really English either. Yeah. So, and then I come to America and I'm not American. Yeah. But, uh, so I don't know where I fit in. Uh, <laughs> you're a wandering star. Um, but Maybe. listen, Maybe. But listen, could you like this is another question we always ask and we find really great answers and kind of varied answers. Um, when did you first become aware of mental health? Well, again, uh, you know, my parents were from uh, rural Ireland mm-hmm. up in the uh, interwar period. They come to England and the thing that they really are happy about is that they have a job and a home, mm-hmm. you know, a house. And so uh, I never even the, I don't think I even heard the word depressed yeah. or uh, people saying that I had anxiety when I was uh, growing up in uh, London. It just wasn't on the agenda. And, you know, it's partly because, again, you know, Irish working class families, they're not exactly known for talking about their mental uh, health issues. You know, usually you say, uh, Dad, I feel a bit uh, anxious today. It is like, shut up, you Egypt. Yeah. You know, that, that's the kind of response. And also, of course, then uh, the culture in Britain doesn't help because, you, you, you know, Britain does have this sort of stoic, sort of culture, the stiff upper lip, you know, uh, carry on, keep calm and carry on, you know, that kind of... Uh, so it wasn't really around me at all, sort of people talking about uh, mental health issues. But I always knew that they they were certainly more advanced about this in America. Do you, do you, would you agree with that? I think that's true. And, of course, the one person that always uh, I always think about as introducing me to mental health issues was Woody Allen. Uh, I used to love Woody Allen films, and, of course, uh, he always was uh, suffering from some kind of mental health issues and he was seeing a therapist always yeah. in the film and so anyway so that it was always america that was the place that had the, the mental health uh, you know uh, structure so anyway so when i came to america that's pretty much true you know i came here to go to college and uh, it was the first time where i came across a, a much more sort of sympathy about uh, mental health issues and to give you an example you know the college i work in now you know we have a a disabilities uh, department that basically deals with these sort of issues. And we have wellness programs for the students. I have a lot of students that get certain accommodations because they have, uh, you know, anxiety or depression or whatever. Some of them can't stay in the classroom. They have to leave for a while. Some people have different uh, uh, learning styles that we have to adapt to. So I'm, I'm very aware of sort of like mental health uh, issues now. And, of course, the college I, I teach in, uh, pro- probably the nearest I could say that, you know, that you'd know what a community college is, it's basically like a further education college. Mm-hmm. So my students are either going to be uh, welders, nurses, uh, car mechanics, or else they're going to then go on to university. So it's like yeah. a, you know, a step before they go to university. So a lot of my students come from working class backgrounds, first generation uh, college students. And uh, they've got to uh, juggle, you know, their studies, uh, their families, you know, with all the issues that come with that. And then, of course, most of them are working. Mm -hmm. A vast majority of my students are working. And I teach classes at eight o'clock in the morning, you know, and I have students come in late for an eight o'clock class. And, of course, you say to them, you know, how come you come in late? Because you've got to be on time. And, of course, they're uh, working in a restaurant or a bar until one o'clock in the morning and then coming into to college. So obviously, you know, I can visibly see with my students that there is a lot of issues about uh, uh, mental health and just juggling the lifestyles that they uh, they live. Yeah. And uh, of course, the pandemic made it even worse because when we were during the pandemic, we were all online. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was isolated in their houses. And, uh, you know, the issues that that sort of brings up about lack of socialization. And again, maybe you know more about this, uh, Derek, but I do get the impression that the students today or young people today are not uh, socializing as much as they were years ago in the sense of social media mm-hmm. or, uh, or I don't really know exactly if that's the only issue, but there does seem to be uh, less socializing with yeah. uh, students and that can cause problems as well. Do you agree with that? I mean, I don't know. No, absolutely. I, I, I do agree with that. I think there's a lot to like, you know, to be said for social media, of course, but obviously with to do with like gaming is a big thing uh, as well. And, you know, yeah. I agree also with what you said about um, America being ahead of, 
of us with regards to mental health because they did talk about you, you Woody Allen's a great example. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody had an analyst or a, you know, exactly. You know, and yeah. it was even when I started watching things like Woody Allen films, I didn't even know what an analyst was, you know. I did yeah. and so we are still catching up. I think we're catching up as well as over in Ireland and, and, and Great Britain. We're we're slowly getting better at coming out and talking about it. I think the Americans are definitely way ahead of us with that. They'll they'll be much more upfront, which I it freaks Irish people out a little bit that they're so upfront. You know, we used to laugh at the Americans. For, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's always they were sort of like the you know they're always saying therapists. Yeah. But uh, once you're surrounded by and like I say in the college, you know you do see that people have anxiety, obviously about doing exams, about getting grades about uh, having money to go to college you know the basic stuff is uh causing a lot of anxiety so you just i can see it in in all my students and like i say we do get these uh forms that uh, from certain students that tell you about accommodations that they need mm-hmm. and you know you can obviously see that some of them are having issues about uh, enormous anxiety before exams about uh, socializing with other students being a room of 30 students, you know, it's kind of uh, pretty overwhelming after you've been at home for two years, you know, in the bedroom. And uh, so, yeah, we're dealing with all them uh, sort of issues with the students. Well, at least, you know, there's that, they're being forthcoming about what it is they're having issues with and stuff. And uh, hopefully this is going to happen over here. I may already do. I mean, obviously I'm out of the loop with regards to college, but um, I wanted to ask you about what appealed to you about history as, as a subject. Well, I think I was always interested in the sort of world around me. So like I say, when I uh, went to do my degree, it was in the social sciences. So I'm doing about uh, economics, politics, uh, sociology and history. But uh, I became aware, and again, this is no offence to political scientists that are in my department or sociologists, but uh, those subjects really, they're, they're a bit limiting. Mm-hmm. And But in terms of history, uh, as I tell my students, it's basically the study of everything. I mean, there's nothing, you know, even what we're talking now about mental health. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in that, that's history, you know, yeah. the study, the history of mental health. Any topic, you know, uh, and again, at the beginning of uh, my uh, the semester in uh, uh, Joliet Junior College, I always ask my students, you know, uh, what figure in uh, US history or British history they most admire. And it's just to get them to sort of talk and, you know, uh, sort of warm them up a bit. But I always say to them, you know, when you think about a famous a person that you admire it could be anything it could be mm-hmm. somebody who's a politician it could be somebody who's a writer it could be somebody who's into sports it's somebody that's uh, a musician it could be anything you know and that's the thing about history it's it's the study of everything and you can't understand the world we live in unless you understand history now i understand we need obviously political science sociology economics as well but i think they're a bit more limiting in their uh, range and also what i like about history is that hopefully when you when you're writing history it's also uh it's a literary you know it's artistic you, you've got to put over a story you've got to put over an argument but i think again in some of those other top uh, subjects they're less interested in engaging people with the uh the prose yeah. and uh, they're just trying to get their sort of uh, data across and I like that about history as well, that you can use it as kind of just telling stories. I agree. I, I found that like, um, and we'll, we'll talk about your book and I've read about, you know, I, I love history myself and I, I read a lot of history books if I can, but you know, there's a very, there's a huge difference in how we um, respond to it on the page, because like you said, if there's a, if there's um you know, you obviously want the facts, but there has to be like a narrative and there has to be, you know, something that grabs hold of you. But then there's these really dry history books where it's yeah. where it's very, very difficult, I think, to 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 kind of grasp onto something. And I, I wanted to ask, there's there's something and this is, again, laughing at the Americans as we as we yeah. used to do. Well, maybe still do. I don't know. But yeah. how do you find because you've experienced learning over in, in Britain about how the the way history is taught there? We often think of America as being limited to only teaching American history. Is that like a misconception that we we seem to have over here? Yeah, no, I think that's not true. I mean, there's, uh, I think, I mean, obviously, there's a core sort of history that most Americans learn, and that would be U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some ways, you know, there has been a problem with that in the past. That U.S. history means. 1607 is when the English land in Jamestown, Virginia, and that's when the class starts. But of course, we now 
uh, are much better at teaching uh, US history in America, but because we go further back and talk about the Native Americans that were here. You know, American history goes back hundreds, thousands of years. It's not just 1607. So there is that angle. But um, uh, yeah, so that uh, US history, obviously, they, they do learn that in schools. And the other thing they learn a lot is uh, world history. That's becoming very, very popular in the last few. And I teach that as well. I have taught that for the last 20 odd years. And uh, also uh, they, they, they learn a lot of, of a, there's a class in America that's called Western Civilization, mm-hmm. which is not a great name, but it's basically uh, the history of uh, Western Europe. Yeah. Plus, uh, the places where Western Europeans went to. So, uh, yeah, we, we teach that class. Well, so, no, no, I think there is a, a wide variety of classes. I think one difference between in the UK and in uh, America is that in the UK, the, the teacher of history is kind of very episodic. Mm-hmm. You know, learn something deeply. You know, British people may be learning about sort of like Alfred the Great, and then you move on to 1066, mm-hmm. and then you move on to Adolf Hitler. Uh, well, in America, they, they do these big survey classes where you cover basically everything from, like I say, 1607 or whatever the class may be. Well, I teach a British history class, which is 1689 up to the present. Okay. Kind of cover pretty much, or supposed to cover uh, all the major events in that. I don't think you'd really get that in the UK. It'd be much more choppy and much yeah. more, uh, you know, cut down into different uh, uh, little micro topics. Mm-hmm. But in, in America, it's much more of a survey. Right. Um, how important has the city of Chicago been to our for America's history? Well, of course, you know, maybe you know this, but we do actually call Chicago Island on the Lake. Yeah, that's I've heard that nice Chicago's on Lake Michigan southwest of uh, Lake Michigan and uh, it is also often known as the flyover city because it's uh, really if you come to America you really visit the east coast New York maybe Boston or whatever down to Florida or else then you go to the west coast to visit uh, LA you know Hollywood and then California up to San Francisco so Chicago's kind of like that you know, like a flyover city. And so therefore it always had the reputation of being uh, uh, America's second city. Yeah. And that's because it was the, it was the second biggest to New York, but it was also seen as being in the shadow of New York. Mm. And uh, I don't know, again, maybe you know this, but you know, a lot of people call Chicago the windy city. Yeah. And- I, I was, do you know what, John, I was actually there for a, a matter of hours. I went up to Sears tower. I hated it because I don't like heights came yeah. back down and kind of left. But I do remember it being quite windy. Well, that's true. But it, that wasn't the region, uh, reason why it was called the Windy City. They, it was called that by uh, Easterners, who said that American uh, politicians and business, uh, sorry, Chicago politicians and business people were always boasting about their city. And so they called ah. it the Windy City. So whenever I hear people coming over here and talk about the wind, there's yeah. no wind in Chicago at all compared to any other place I've been anyway. So, but anyway, that, so it's basically, uh, it's the second city. It's seen as being in the shadow of New York. That's mm-hmm. the truth. Uh, it was though uh, built uh, relatively late in, in American terms uh, after there was a fire in 1871, great fire, fire in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they built then a brand new city and they built the skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. So you get this modern city, that was uh, built on the uh, edge of the lake. And as you probably noticed, it does look spectacular. Mm-hmm. Right on Lake Michigan, we've even got beaches, and then you have these huge skyscrapers that uh, built there. And, of course, it had a huge labour movement. You know, May Day started in uh, Chicago. Uh, and, of course, then a large Irish population comes here. And, uh, it, you know, it has a large St. Patrick's Day parade. You can get Smithwick's beer here. I don't know if you've got Eric, but... No, nah, I wouldn't yeah. drink that, but... No, well, I'm not a big fan of it either. And uh, and Guinness is better in Dublin. There's no question yeah. about that. But still, you could, you know, there's so many pubs here that are called Ovis or Mac Van. And uh, there is uh, St. Patrick's Day, of course, just uh, everybody's Irish, you know. And uh, there's two million people on the streets for the parade. Oh, and also we're, we're, we're the city that has come up with that great idea of actually um, dyeing the river green. Yeah. So, St. Patrick's Day, yeah, the, the river is green. I'm not sure that's great uh, ecologically nowadays, but anyway, and that's what they do. And uh, in the in the 20th century, uh, the, uh, the politics of the city was dominated by the Irish. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had the uh, mayors here with names the, the, the 
in the 1930s, uh, Kelly, you know, yeah. Edward Kelly. And then, of course, the, the Mayor Daly and his son, two, two Mayor Dalys. And uh, the people that ran the city were always called the, uh, the Irish Mafia. That's right. And it's not quite like that today, but still, whenever I get anything in the mail about uh, local elections that are coming up or whatever, you can be damn sure that some of them are called Burke or right. Matt Nicholas yeah. or whatever. In other words, there's still here very much an Irish presence here. So, yeah, so it is a very Irish uh, uh, town, got a very Irish presence to it. And um, it's played a major role. Some of the major events in the you know, US history took it. I mean, the re- one of the reasons why I, I wrote this book about mm. Chicago, obviously, and one of the reasons is because uh, I thought people would be interested in the Beatles story in Chicago. You know, Chicago is where we had the, again, you probably know, the uh, Democratic National Convention yeah. riot place in 68. We had Martin Luther King was here and he was attacked on the streets. Uh, you know, sh- the, the, some of the sort of major sort of uh, uh, figures of uh, 20th century uh, America came to Chicago at one time or another to live here. So it does have that sort of uh, interest, I think, to a wider audience. And, of course, Al Capone. Yeah, yeah, very famous. Uh, some people, uh, when I mentioned uh, you were coming on and I mentioned the book with Chicago, that, that was the kind of the first uh, name that seemed to come so. to people. I'm afraid so. Yeah. And it's, uh... I mean, it's not the reputation Chicago really wants. No, and... I'm when the Beatles came here, their first press conference, somebody actually asked them, of course, you know, what uh, what did you think of Chicago before you came here? And, of course, Paul McCartney basically said gangsters. Yeah. Not what the, the mayor at the time wanted to promote as being... Uh, and, of course, now we're trying to promote Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, that hopefully people around the world know Chicago because of Michael Jordan, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter where you go, it's still Al Capone. It's, yeah. I mean, we all know Jordan, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Capone came first, although he couldn't dunk, apparently. I know. Um, it, that was a bad joke. John, uh, let me read out an advert, and we're going to get back into it, and we're, we're going to talk a bit more about uh, the Beatles in Chicago. So let me get this one uh, this one right. So Fusion Training Centre, Monksland, Athlone. A place to train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, kickboxing, martial arts and CrossFit. A great atmosphere with experienced coaches and a real sense of community. If you want to join the team, find us on Facebook at Fusion Training Centre or drop in for a chat. Fusion Training Centre, train like a warrior. Okay, so, John, what? when did you start or when did your interest uh, start uh, with uh, the Beatles? Well, I, I, I pretty much grew up with them. I mean, I was uh, growing up in the 60s and they were everywhere, you know. And uh, so I can't remember, there was never a time, again, in America, there was this, uh, there was a TV show called The Ed Sullivan Show Mm -hmm. that was on uh, in February 1964. And all Americans remember that, that were around at the time, as being their introduction to the Beatles. You know, that was their first live appearance on TV. But in the in the UK, there was no equivalency, really. You can't really say there was that sort of moment. So it sort of grew, you know, over time. And then 63 obviously broke through massively. And uh, I can remember going to see Help, the mm-hmm. film. I can remember seeing the Beatles on the, um, let me think, on the David Frost show, doing Hey Jude, you know, that piece of films, famous yeah. piece of film now. I can remember that. I can remember them being on the uh, Top of the Pops, uh, the, the film from the Apple Roof, where they were doing uh, Get Back. Uh, my brother, I remember buying the first album we had in the house was Abbey Road. Uh first time we had a record player i think was in the mid 60s and i remember having paperback writer as the one of the first singles we had in the house so they're always there you know the beat i I kind of grew up with them really and uh, when i started buying my own records when i was a teenager obviously the beatles were broken up and uh, i liked uh, all i mean david bowie led zeppelin that was the sort of era for that i like reggae music dance music so i like the beatles along with Mm -hmm. the other groups and musicians uh, that I don't, you know, I'm not one of these that is just kind of fanatical about the Beatles. I I like all different types of music, but you can't deny about the influence of the Beatles. That's the, to me, that's the, you know, if you're interested in history, I I teach British and American history and you can't really teach both of them without mentioning the Beatles. Yeah. Do you know what was, was great actually um, the tie in in the book of the, of some people you mentioned as you go along and the first time that they saw them was on the, the Ed Sullivan show. And there's those, yeah. there's those statistics that you hear about, like there was no crime 
in New York during this period of time, which is sketchy enough, you know what I mean? But I, but what, what I, what I loved about, uh, you know, finding out more stuff about the Beatles was one thing in the book, but finding out about Chicago was was really interesting to me. And I could I couldn't believe that there was such an influence influence of, um, well, not that I couldn't believe it because obviously the Irish connection and stuff, but the Catholics within the the within Chicago, there was certain parts like censorship on the radio fifties and sixties, and even you mentioned about bands having to re-record songs okay. to put it on the radio, which kind of mind blowing on that one. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 okay, the Catholic Church was basically uh, uh, huge in Chicago. It had so much influence. It was, the, it was the largest diocese in the country, so bigger than New York. And uh, they had the ear of uh, City Hall. So obviously all the mayors in Chicago, and like I say, the Irish Mafia, they're all Catholics, and they were in constant communication with the Catholic Church. And then, uh, again, coming from Ireland, you probably wouldn't be too surprised at this, but maybe other people would, that the priests used to have uh, columns in the local newspapers. Very, yeah, yeah. write columns. And most of these columns would basically talk about where America has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. That was the, you know, which, the, you know, they'd be writing these columns about America's going to the dogs for about 100 years, but they, they were certainly writing them in the 60s, these priests. So they had enormous... Uh, influence and they also had influence on the radio what was being played and like you say the the largest radio station was wls in the, the 60s in chicago and they were famous for censoring mm-hmm. you know that uh, and some uh, some unbelievable stuff and like you say there was one record which was uh you know for your listeners a lot of them probably know it, and that's van morrison uh, them mm-hmm. had a, a song out called uh, gloria and it wasn't a big hit in the 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 island or the uk at the time but they started to play in these garage bands in chicago started to pick up on it and there was one band called the shadows of night and uh, they wanted to record a version of it and they had to change the lyrics and the lyrics they had to change was because in the lyrics it said uh, i can't remember the exact words but along the lines of she came to my room yeah that's right yeah now, i've got a dirty mind but you know Obviously, people in Chicago, the Catholic Church, had an even dirtier mind than mine because what they read into that was, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, I, I do know. Thanks there, Derek, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know, but so, I know. So they had to, they had to record, record the record with different lyrics. And then also, I should have mentioned this when they were on the subject. Believe it or not, WLS uh, banned three Beatles records. Did that oh. Did that happen in the, did the BBC ban I Am the Walrus, the, the line? let your knickers yeah, down knickers they didn't like the word knickers but that was, uh, you know that was again the bbc was a little yeah. bit heavy on censoring mm. as well that's true but uh in in uh, the wls they changed they uh, banned a day in the life because they thought it was about uh drugs you know there's a drug influence in it and that again was banned by the bbc as well so they probably were both involved in that and then uh the um uh, uh, the ballad of John and Yoko because mm. they used the word Christ in it, and then uh, what, what? Not a bit quite directly a Beatles song, but the uh, Plastic Ono band Cold Turkey. Yeah. Also banned that. So that was uh, three records that were banned by uh, WLS. It's it's and, yeah. Like I say, the Catholic Church did have enormous influence. There's no doubt about it. I yeah. Make, you know, Mayor Daly. I mean, he was a yeah a, the mayor of Chicago. He was mayor. He became mayor in 1955. And he died in office in 1976. You think about that, 21 years as mayor. And he'd still be mayor today if he hadn't died. <laughs> and uh, basically, uh, he was a man who used to get up every morning. He was a, a, a staunch, and he used to go to church every morning. And uh, then he'd go to the office and uh, he'd do uh, his work. And his, his uh, famous uh, hobbies were going to see the White Sox baseball team. He came from the south side of Chicago. And uh, listening to a nice jaunty Irish song. Oh, nice. I don't even know what is a jaunty Irish song. The oh, Dublin, something like that. Yeah, yeah. but, 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 but you know. John, you know, you talk about someone like Daly because, uh, like, I I had heard of Daly before. Like, he's almost like the yeah. most infamous of the mayors of yeah. America's twentieth century America, I suppose. But you know. For for a guy like you say who went to church and uh, every day and 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 was you know did not like the Beatles, um, he was quite he was involved with corruption, uh, suggestions of corruption uh, a number of times, um, and he did have 
what was the line? Was it to um, which of the Kennedys about when they were looking for some sort of a tip off for me to get a haircut? Which is you think about the Bobby Kennedy? Bobby Kennedy ran for president in '68, mm. and whatever you, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you know, powerful daily was because uh, he not only did he he was called the boss. Mm-hmm. Told you everything and in, in Chicago. He obviously owned Chicago, but then he had influence in the Democratic Party in uh, Springfield, the capital of Illinois. So he dominated that. And then also because they had, uh, you know, politicians, senators and that uh, representatives that went to Washington, D.C. He had a big influence in Washington, D.C., in the federal government, you know. And uh, so if you wanted to run for president or run for anything, you had to go and see Mayor Daley and get his uh, OK. And Bobby Kennedy went to see him when he was running in 68 and uh, they had a great chat and, you know, their, their, their common Irish ancestry obviously helped. And then at the end, Bobby Kennedy said to him, uh, to Mayor Daly, uh, is there anything you think I should do? And Mayor Daly says, yeah, I think you should get a haircut. I mean, that's that does nit- sum him up really, doesn't it? Mayor Daly? It's sum nitpicking him. a little bit. There, there, there's certain things that like, there's still these facts that I come across uh, about the Beatles and, um, there's one in particular early in early 1964. They held the top five spots on the Billboard 100. Um, but yet, as you mentioned in the book, um, they were seen as as a danger by by cultural t- traditionists. Um, by and, and it's not just priests, by the way. There's rabbis. It, it covers a, a lot of different religions as well. Yeah, I th- you know, that was one of the things that I wouldn't say surprised me, but uh, mm. I was a little bit uh, surprised at the depth of the opposition yeah. to uh, the Beatles, you know. And certainly in Chicago, it's, it came from, yeah, all religions. That is very true. And I think that's uh, the the thing there is they were worried about the reaction of the girls. Yeah. That they thought that they were more interested in, shall we say, sensual matters rather than spiritual matters. Yeah. The, and also because the Beatles, they always kept saying they're agnostic. That yeah. was whenever they were asked at a press conference, you know, what do you think about religion? They never said they were Christian and they often criticized uh, the Christian church, not not uh, the teachings of Christ. But, they, uh, you know, they did uh, criticize the church. And so they, they called themselves agnostic. And of course, if you were uh, somebody in America in the 60s, that obviously meant a uh, atheist, you know. Yeah. So yeah. The, the church didn't like them or religion in general. And then the second group didn't bite. It was obviously Mayor Daly and uh, the uh, the political establishment. And they didn't bite them because uh, they were worried that when they came to Chicago, that, that uh, they were uh, going to bring uh, unruly behaviour mm. with them on the, the audience. And so what Mayor Daly did was when, when the Beatles came to Chicago in 64 for their first tour, they, uh, they wouldn't allow them to stay overnight in the city. So that's why the Beatles flew in at like 4.30 in the afternoon, and they already were on the way flying out to Detroit yeah. at 11.30 that night. They are only in the city for seven hours, you know, and that included a press conference. And uh, the other thing he did then is he didn't want crowds to greet them at the airport. So Mayor Daly came up with a great idea, and that was uh, he'd keep it a secret where they were landing. Yeah. And it's only two airports, so it wasn't <laughs> that secret. But anyway, and then, uh, of course, the press agent for the promoter decided to tell... Uh, the radio station WLS who broadcast it where they were staying so Mayor Daly went absolutely nuts and instead of the Beatles coming into the main airport which was O'Hare he got the pilot to divert the plane to Midway Airport which is why they came into Midway Airport in uh, 64 and not into uh, O'Hare and he did the same trick in 65 actually they they came in uh, there in 65 but uh, so anyway that was the second uh, Mm. Opposition. There was the church. There was Mayor Daly in the establishment. But the third one was the uh, the Chicago Tribune. That was yeah. a major newspaper in Chicago, and really it was one of the major newspapers in the country. And it was a Republican newspaper, and so they were the ones that were really worried about the um, the, the the changes that the Beatles were going to bring to America, the cultural changes that they seem to be much more liberal. Mm-hmm. They seem to be bringing uh, uh, talking about issues such as civil rights obviously later on about the, the war. And uh, so therefore the uh, the Tribune was very uh, an- antagonistic towards the Beatles. And the the, the, um, the editor throughout the 60s, his name was uh, W.D. Maxwell, and he wrote uh, one of the first editorials against the Beatles in January 64. This is before the Ed Sullivan show, where he actually warned the people. He titled the, the editorial Beatles Menace. 
So right. he was warning people about the Beatles. But then the classic one that I always like and is the one where he wrote uh, after the Ed Sullivan show. So they appeared in the Ed Sullivan show on uh, February the 9th. And then he wrote this uh, editorial and the headline was Human Sheepdogs. That's right. So, yeah. And, and then the editorial was basically saying about how awful this group was. Some of the stuff like the, the you know, uh, from there and, and, and Maxwell and stuff and writing about calling them girls and, you know, like hair like girls and stuff. And I just yeah. I wrote out this quote and it, this is from a rabbi, actually, rather than the, the paper. But yeah. uh, uh, they said Antichrist beatniks that could destroy our nation as Plato warned in his republic. I mean, they're, you know, they're, over the top. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit yeah. over the top. Uh, you know, it's it's and another thing, John. Actually, while we're on it, because what what I found interesting again, because you talk about Irish Catholics, they look down on them because they were British. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't overplay that too right. much because obviously that connection with Ireland was a yep. little bit more tenuous by the sixties. But certainly there was that element in it. You know, the yeah. the, the Beatles were seen as being a, a British band, and they were seen as upholding British values, and therefore there there certainly was a uh, an element but of course as you know you know three of them are irish yeah that's uh, true uh, you know uh, i wouldn't be too uh, uh, you know saying that the uh, the group were uh, upholding british values yeah but, and that I think actually, do you mind if i just read something to you of course uh, go for it show derek are you a sort of show that allows people to read something absolutely i am you are okay, yes, I'm do it because it's such a great quote that uh, i'm doing a speaking tour at the moment i always use it at the end of my uh, speech and it's basically from somebody called jack riley right. who again was part of that irish mafia and his job was to um uh put on all the major sort of uh, events, social events that were happening in Chicago. So he was the one that was in charge of the Beatles' visit. You know, it wasn't mere daily. Anyway, and what they used to do is uh, people, whenever they wanted to do anything in Chicago, you wrote to mere daily. Mm-hmm. You know, that was it. He, You know, that shows you how much power he had, including in early 64, uh, teenagers were writing to mere daily, asking him to allow the Beatles to have a show in Chicago. So you can imagine, you know, and then they used to write to him and say, you know, they wanted tickets to show. Some of them want to meet the Beatles. Some of them want to give them the keys to the city. But they all wrote to Mayor Daly for these yeah. things. And then it was Jack Riley, this, uh, again, another Irish-American, who would then respond to these uh, mostly girls that wrote mm-hmm. to the uh, Mayor Daly. And this was such a great, I've got to read it to you. Yeah. This was one where a, uh, a girl wanted to basically uh, write to uh, Mayor Daly and ask if she could give the Beatles the keys to the city. And uh, he replied, the Beatles will come to Chicago and the Beatles will leave the next day. The world will not change one bit because of their appearance here and their departure. A year from now, some other entertainer will occupy the spotlight and you will be wondering who were the Beatles, faintly remembering you had heard that name somewhere. summer of 64 but i think what what i like about that quote it shows you just how out of touch yeah that they were with popular culture yeah mayor daly you know he'd go and see the white socks or might might put on an irish jig but he really had no clue about uh, popular culture but one of the things i found out which again kind of amazed me is of course uh, when you're mayor of uh, chicago or major politician you can get tickets to any event Mm -hmm. yeah he got tickets to see the beatles and he gave them to his sons oh did he yes and one of them became mayor later on oh, so wow. that gives you an idea you know that the, the opposition to the Beatles goes so far yeah that, uh, he allowed a, a couple of his sons to go and see uh, uh, the Beatles but yeah I just uh, they were just yeah. so out of touch I think that's yeah. the, that's the point about a lot of these people really they just couldn't see uh, you know uh, what was happening yeah and do, do you know what this this kind of leads on, John, to, to a, a chapter, a brilliant chapter about the increase in sales of instruments from 63 to 65. And like you touched on already, the the huge swell of, of new groups from Chicago. Yeah. I mean, this is unbelievable, really. I mean, it's and again, not just Chicago, uh, you know, all around mm-hmm. America, but uh, people are inspired to become musicians because of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because of uh, the uh, Ed Sullivan show. If you ever see any of that, uh, if any of your listeners ever have a look at uh, some of us on YouTube, you, you can look at their appearance. And what they do is they basically just sing their songs. There's, there's no dance routines, you know, 
they're, they're just smiling. They're having a good time. You know, they're both, you know, it, it looks. And what uh, teenagers watching at home saw was they saw something. It was just so easy. Mm-hmm. Anybody could do it. They're having such a great time. They're just a, a gang of friends. They're up on stage and they've got thousands of girls screaming at them. Yeah. You know, of course I'm going to do that. So everybody rushed down and they bought the instruments thinking that, uh, you know, they were going to then form bands. Some of them did form bands. But many of the musicians I spoke to, they all said that once they started to then cover Beatles songs, they realized how difficult it was mm-hmm. to play them. You know, the chord structures are not easy to play. And also the harmonies are just so difficult to replicate. And so therefore, luckily enough, in the summer of 64, another group appeared on the scene whose music was a lot easier to play. And I think you know who that is, the Rolling Stones. Yeah. So that's why a lot of these groups, they're inspired uh, to become musicians and form bands because of the uh, the Beatles. But then a lot of the times the music they played was more influenced by the Stones, the Yardbirds, the Animals, because it was a bit easier to play. You could Absolutely. Um, yeah. There's there's a... Now, I'll, I'll let you kind of take this away, but one, the interesting kind of thing I took from this was the... When uh, John Lennon gave a famous interview... Uh, to Maureen Cleave about the the Beatles being bigger than Jesus. That's the that's the quote. Uh, without the context around it, uh, they had he had to give this very tense uh, kind of press conference in Chicago. Um, um, could you just actually maybe just give us a little bit of background on the actual the piece that by the journalist, and then you know about the actual, that actual press conference. Yeah, I think by early '66, the Beatles were kind of consciously trying to break away from their. Uh, image you know the mop top boy band uh, image and so they started to give interviews where they're discussing sort of more worldly issues and in the interview that he gave with uh, Maureen Clee for the London newspaper the Evening Standard uh, he was talking about the decline of religion in uh, the UK you know that uh, and it's true I mean everybody says that about uh, Britain in the 60s there was a decline in uh, people going to church etc so he made that comment and uh, it did actually get a little bit more uh, pushback in the UK than kind of, you know, uh, historians have kind of noted uh, since, but it did get bumped, but not that much. And then it started to appear in uh, American uh, newspapers and magazines. And again, a bit of pushback, but not not massively, you know, uh, opposition. But then uh, a uh, teen magazine, teenage magazine called uh, Datebook, uh, took up on the uh, the, the interviews and they published them in their journal and I spoke to the managing uh, editor his name is Danny Fields he became late uh, famous later on uh, well he's involved in the record industry but before uh, managing the Ramones but he was oh. the managing editor of this uh, teen magazine and he said that he got the the, the the interviews from the Beatles it was actually <laughs> them that gave it to this teen magazine they actually had the, the, the publisher of the magazine's name's Art Unger. He knew the Beatles. He toured with the Beatles. And so they were kind of friends. So it wasn't as if the magazine was doing anything underhand. It was the Beatles gave them the uh, article saying, you know, I think it will suit your audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, pushing this new image of the Beatles. So anyway, so they, they put uh, Paul McCartney on the cover. And uh, the first quote was a quote that uh, Paul McCartney made a very antagonistic quote about race relations in America mm-hmm. from the Moore and Cleave interview. And then underneath it, they put Lennon's quote, which was about uh, the Beatles being more popular than, than Jesus. So the magazine, he told me that he thought that uh, people would uh, pick up on the, the Paul McCartney quote. You know, obviously he's on the front cover and the, that's the first quote. But it was a small radio station in Alabama that actually picked up on the other issue, which was Lennon's quote about religion. And I think it's because there was a lot of anxiety about uh, religion in, especially against amongst Protestants in early 1960s. You know, there was already a Supreme Court decision about uh, you could no longer say prayers in the public schools. Uh, There was now public funding for Catholic schools, which was new. And, you know, there was a lot of articles about uh, the decline in religion in America as well, the the power of the Protestant religion. And so I think that's why they picked up on the the Lennon quote. And they ran with it, this uh, radio station in Alabama. It was then picked up by other radio stations. And uh, again, a lot lot of, um, you know, historians that have written about this sort of picture as being just a local affair 
you know, the Southerners, the, the Bible Belt were the ones that were uh, angry against Lenin. But it, it wasn't. It was all over America. And it spread even into Canada, into South Africa. It spread into a lot of places. So it wasn't just a, a Southern uh, Bible Belt place. It was all over America. And, uh, you know, I think it was because a lot of people, they wanted to take the Beatles down. They thought yeah. they were becoming too popular. They were too cocky. They were now making statements about Vietnam War and about uh, banning the bomb and all these sort of issues. And uh, there was a backlash of conservatism. This is when Ronald Reagan was running for the um, California governor. And so uh, I think that there was a backlash against the Beatles. And they, they used the Lenin quote to basically anchor this backlash. And uh, as you said, it ended up with um, Paul, uh, sorry, with the Beatles coming to uh, Chicago in uh, August 66. And he had to give a, uh, a press conference where he pretty much, he was a little bit mealy mouthed, but he pretty much did apologise. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the remarkable thing about that is uh, that uh, I, 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 I spoke to somebody who was a philanthropist and he got a number of tickets from the uh, promoter at face value and then he wanted to sell them at a premium and with the money he's going to give to a local hospital right. and he couldn't sell the tickets he ended up by virtually giving them away at the end and wow. that signifies that the it wasn't just the south southern yeah. belt that was uh latching onto this that it really did reach even into places like chicago new york and uh you know somebody other quote liberal cities and so um you know, it, it was a major event. I think it, yeah. it really was. And it, it was one of the major reasons why the Beatles stopped touring. And uh, Lennon certainly still remembered it all throughout mm-hmm. the 70s up until the end. It was something he talked about that uh, he nearly got killed in uh, America. Yeah. So, um, the, yeah. You know, that that uh, that press conference is, is, is kind of, it sticks to me as, as something that, you know, the jovial... Uh, Beatles that you you always see obviously it was going to be less jovial with what they had to you know speak about on that day but if you watch some of the press conferences from around, in and around that time the last American tour there's just kind of the the, the kind of spirit has gone out of them and it, it, it's yes, you know I totally agree yeah yeah if you watch the, the the great one to watch is the the first press conference they gave in uh, New York yeah Kennedy Airport, 64. And that was such a great press conference. That was the one where they're all on the top of their game. They were so happy to be in America. They were so excited. And, uh, you know, it was fantastic. But even by the time they got to Chicago in the summer of 64, the tone had already changed. Yeah. You know, even by then, they were tired. They were, you know, getting fed up with the same old questions. And they were fed up also of the heat they were getting. You know, it, it, I think in Chicago more than anywhere else, but certainly even elsewhere. If you look at the the, the journalists, most of them were men. They were middle-aged uh, men that really didn't have much interest in the Beatles, looked down upon them and, uh, you know, sort of, you know, if you want to say they were like Jack Riley, you know, yeah. like the quote I, I gave earlier. And so I think that that then carries on. But certainly by 66, the press conferences, most of them are... Um, they're pretty dour affairs. Yeah. They're annoyed, you know, and they're also, they are, they were getting a little bit too annoyed with the press. I think they were, they were antagonizing the press mm-hmm. as much as the press was antagonizing them. You yeah. Know? Yeah. There was pushback from both. Right. That press conference, you see, if you see that one, it's a, it's a, it's on YouTube. It's a TV one that they gave. And then they gave a second one after that in Chicago. There was two press conferences and that one was a little bit different, but right. certainly the first one is the one that is the, the most famous one, yeah. the one where you can really see that they've just had enough, really. Yeah. Um, there was another thing that that was that you mentioned about it was because after this '66, we started moving into the kind of counterculture that was coming about in '67 and stuff like that. And I, I wasn't gonna, I was, I said there wasn't gonna be a quiz, but this is kind of a, a quiz-like question. So, and this this is framed really poorly, but right. So if one is Alabama, okay, we're going to just now we're talking about 67, obviously not we're talking about now. So if one is Alabama and 10 is San Francisco, where would Chicago sit on the scale of hippie dumb in 1967? Two. Really? I thought you were going to say like five or six, to be honest. I, I honestly think that basically, if you think about hippie dumb yeah. in, in um, America, it really, it was a, a West Coast phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously San Francisco, L.A. or whatever. And then it was New York. New York is the art, cultural 
centre of America, pretty obviously. And then it uh, much, much less so in uh, the Southern Belt, like you said. And then also not really in Chicago. I, I spoke Again, I spoke to a lot of people. There was a, 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 um, a countercultural magazine in Chicago called The, the Seed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spoke to a number of people associated with that. And they said it was still dangerous throughout the 60s, even into the 70s, to walk around Chicago with long hair. You know, you've got a chance of getting beaten up. Yeah. And uh, if you ever look at any of them photos of these groups that uh, we were talking about, the post, you know, the Shadows of Night, the Buckinghams and all yeah. these other ones that were reasonably popular, the crime shames. If you look at them, the, the, the musicians have got the Beatle haircut, but you look at the audience and all the boys have got the short back and sides, mm-hmm. all got short hair. So it wasn't a phenomenon. This this hippie thing was really. And then, of course, um, the illustration of that is if you've ever seen some of the footage of the 1968 Democratic Convention, uh, you'll see the reaction of working class mm-hmm. Chicago to these hippies. Yeah, because most of the most of the police were working class white, working class uh, Chicago and supporters of Mayor Daley. And they had no time whatsoever for uh, the counterculture, these uh, people that were unpatriotic and people that were um, lazy, good for nothing. You, know, you can add on the swear word at the end, but that's, uh, that's the basic gist of it. And so the, when the Beatles were uh, associated so deeply with that, I think it does affect their popularity. I think without a doubt. Yeah, like I want to go off some, because you mentioned the the convention as well, you know, Um and the national capital of police repression. Um, and I, so I, re- I kind of wrote out some bits here. I hope it makes for some coherent sentences. But um, yeah. we're under, undercover operatives for the police said the Beatles were funded by the entertainment section of the Communist Party and that Paul was a member of the Young Communist League. Yeah. Which uh, to me was a uh, fascinating reading in your book, something I never heard about before. And uh, yeah. Obviously, this is uh, not true, but again, it's just trying to take down the people who are at the top of the game, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, obviously, if you were, uh, again, against the counterculture, the Beatles in 67 were kind of the centre of it, weren't they? Yeah. They really were with Sergeant Pepper. And uh, there was a sort of growing counter, like I said, the Seed newspaper. There was a couple of venues in Chicago that were, um, you know, associated with the counterculture. And Mayor Daly just didn't have any time for any of it. You know, he he sued the um, the Seed newspaper. He shut down some of these venues for different uh, reasons. You know, some of it minor. And uh, one of the most uh, uh, famous or funny ones was uh, the first time. You know, most of your listeners probably know that the John and Yoko bought out an album called The Two Virgins. Yeah. And they decided it was a great idea to have a picture of both of them naked on the front cover. And, uh, you know, whatever you think of nudity, yeah, you know, it's there. Yeah. But anyway, so a lot of people in Chicago didn't like this. And, of course, um, the Chicago police didn't like it when one of these uh, countercultural stores put up a, uh, a, a photo from that cover. Because the the cover in America, they actually it was in a plastic in a, a paper brown paper bag to cover up the nudity. Mm-hmm. You weren't even allowed to see the cover. But basically, he they put up this uh, postcard in the picture in their store, and the store was raided, and there were two arrested for uh, obscenity. Yeah. So, and that was the first time it happened in America. Then after that, New York, uh, I'm sorry, New Jersey. Uh, then confiscated some of their albums, John and Yoko's albums, and went elsewhere. But that was the first time that uh, people were brought to court over the John and Yoko cover, and it just happened to be in Chicago. Well, not um, just happened. I think there was a reason. It was because Mayor Daly was so much against the counterculture, he was looking for it everywhere. I mean, the, the music-wise, it probably did did people a favour because they're, it's not they're not the greatest work by John Lennon uh, um, or Yoko, I would say, but I understand, yeah, that kind of um, trying to shut things down and still, you know, you don't think of it as, as uh, well, people probably would think of it as a very long time ago, but, you know, it's it's not in, in the grand scheme of things, not a very long time ago. There was kind of a sad, a sad kind of end to the book because obviously you're going to be talking about the Beatles breaking up and if you're a big fan of the Beatles, it's a sad story, but a quiet end to the Beatles, as you mentioned, in a lot of the magazines and, and newspapers. Yeah, again, you you kind of I've read so much about the breakup of the Beatles, 
And they always, not everybody, but a lot of people seem to then write a sentence saying uh, headlines around the world. Yeah. You always see that. The breakup of the Beatles grabbed headlines around the world. And I thought, well, let's have a look at this. And I started to look at the newspapers in America. It never grabbed headlines Mm. in America and it didn't in the rest of the world. And I think that was because by then, by this was April 1970, you know, it did grab the headline, obviously, in the Daily Mirror. We all know that one. But it was basically in like page 15. Uh, tucked into some other local news in most po- newspapers because uh, it just wasn't that big of the, uh, news. Yeah. And I do think, yeah, partly it's because it was, you know, it wasn't that clear that the Beatles had broke up, but generally it, it was. And I think the reason is because uh, the Beatles were just not the um, the headline news that they were in 64, 65, 66. And yeah. you can see that. You can, uh, you know, if you look at the newspapers in Chicago or anywhere else, the coverage on the Beatles wanes. If you look at Rolling Stone magazine, you know, which was the sort of the, the real sort of, you know, rock countercultural magazine, they were on virtually every cover in 68. Mm. You know, well, I actually counted them. It was actually every other cover, believe it or not. Right. But if you go into 69, barely half a dozen. Yeah. They were not as big in 69. And I think one of the reasons for that also is because, uh, yes, yeah, some people were fed up with them because they didn't like the counterculture. They wanted the old Beatles. And but I think the other reason is if you think about '64, what really uh, did the Beatles have as rivals? Yeah, yeah, musical rivals, really. I mean, you could say Bob Dylan, obviously, but you know, Dave yeah. Clark Five, yeah, Herman's Hermits, you know, That's you could yeah. Peter and yeah. Gordon, yeah. So by 1969, obviously, now you've got all the sort of like the Joni Mitchell, the Neil Young, you've got the uh, uh, Led Zeppelin, yeah. you've got the Stones are now really getting yeah. into their peak in 69. And of course, the Beatles hadn't toured for three years. You know, yeah. They hadn't, they stopped touring in August 66. Now the Stones toured in 69. They had their own lighting. They had their own sound. They had their own stage show. Mm-hmm. It was a completely different uh, thing, live music. And of course, Woodstock. Of course, yeah, well, yeah. That had already happened. And that then meant that if you wanted to be at the centre of the music industry in 69, 70, you really had to be a live act. Yeah. Really so t- much of it is based now around these cult uh, pop festivals. And look yeah. at Led Zeppelin. They built the whole reputation in America on their live shows. They yeah. just taught so much. And the Beatles, they were stuck in a studio. If I, if I ever, if I have my quietest year and I release Abbey Road, I will be a, uh... Very uh, happy man. I mean, it just goes to show the quality was still there, but you're right. Like, even then, as a, as a, better, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, it, of course. Of course, Abbey Road was enormously popular. You know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, and people always say that, you know, well, they're at, the late albums were very popular, mm. but that was because people were buying more albums in general. Yeah. You know, the, the album sales went up in the 60s, you know, but if you look at the Beatles' major singles, you know, they really were the early ones. Yeah. Okay, hey, Jude. But really... It was. I mean, she loves you. I want to hold your hand. It really was those early ones that were the, the major ones. So the market had changed from singles to albums. And uh, the album market was just dominated then by, well, becoming dominated by those big uh, acts that were uh, appearing. Yeah. And, and genres expanding as well, which is another big thing. Yeah. But um, yeah. so, John, what do you like to do in your spare time? I don't have any. I, I I spend all my time writing books about the Beatles. I have very little spare time. Well, no, you know, I, I, yeah, sorry. Just go off the back of that because you can you could continue the answer. But uh, my next question was going to tie in with that anyway. So, what have you got? Like books in the pipeline? Then? Yeah. Okay. So you know, when you do a book like this on the Beatles, and uh, I, I I got so much material that I couldn't yeah. put into the book. You know, stuff that I realised later was no good for the book, and my editor realized by putting a red pen through it all and sticking it you know throwing it out the book so i had a lot of material left over and also when i when i do any sort of project like this i do keep a pretty wide lens you know you you see things that look very interesting but not aren't necessarily associated with the book so anyway so uh, basically what i'm, I'm going to do next is believe it or not this is a uh, local history of the beatles how they uh, were received in chicago a community yeah. study if you want to say for the beatles i'm now, now actually going to do more of a global one Oh, wow. I'm going to look at how the Beatles uh, developed politically and how they were received in other parts of the world. See, John, I've never read a book like that. Now, that, that's exciting because I 
I've read an, a good number of Beatles books. I wouldn't be, you know, be able to think of how many, but yeah, from that from that point of view, I haven't read anything. No, I mean that is one of the big sort of gaps that everybody yeah. says. There's like over two thousand Beatles books out there. What more is there to say? And uh, there's so much more to say. Mm-hmm. I think that's a nonsense because, but I think what people are thinking about is uh, uh, Beatles biography. You know yeah. the the uh, the story of quote the four Beatles, and of course Mark Lewison's doing that, and that's fine, you know. But it, it, what we need now is we need to sort of like think uh, a bit more widely mm. about the Beatles story and about, uh, like I say, how they were received elsewhere. You know, I've been reading about uh, uh, doing some research on that Philippines conference, uh, yeah, concert that is a famous one. Actually, if you read into that though, it's that story is again is a lot different than the one we have. You know, mm-hmm. there, there is a if you want to say an anti-colonial attitude in a lot of these uh, countries, uh, because the Beatles are spreading British and Western influence. Yeah. And, uh, a lot of people in the Philippines, they were very disappointed with the Beatles because they felt that they disrespected them. Yeah. And I think you'll find that in a, uh, again, India is a classic example. We do know a bit more about India, but South America, mm-hmm. you never read anything about what the no. people in South America thought of the Beatles. And again, no. there's so many great stories there. I mean, really, I've come across. So anyway, yeah, I think that there's a lot more we can do. And yeah. again, um, you know, even things like, uh, you know, the, the women have not got enough coverage in the mm-hmm. story, really, obviously. You know, that that is something uh, uh, Mark Lewison's book is very much based on the, the four Beatles. And I know he's obviously going to uh, introduce the women into it, but uh, his book is very much a biography. And yeah. I think what we need is, in addition to that, is... Uh, uh, thinking of, with a wider lens about yeah. the Beatles. And that's what the Beatles fans kind of want. Uh, Mark Lewisome, oh, obviously. Yeah. yeah, of course, because Mark yeah. Lewisome, it's they're, they're must-reads because of the, the how expansive they are, well, how expansive the first one was anyway. But the the um, the um idea that there's newer stuff for us that for us to learn, that's what we want with whatever we're into, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, ex- it's, it's very exciting. Um, John, you've been a, a, a genuine pleasure to have on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Derek. I, I, I appreciate it. Listen, John, if you wouldn't mind, I'll just finish out this little bit here. We'll take a quick photo for the archives and uh, and then we'll get on to, uh, to our days because you've got more of your day left than I have. You want a photo of me? Of course. I've just taken a big video of you now, oh, John. This is going to do for your uh, publicity, but we'll go with it. Then. Skyrocket it, John. Skyrocket. That's what it's going to do. Itself, but... <laughs> okay. 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 Listen, I off. off. I also have to thank uh, John Francis for doing the technical work for me. Uh, I always thank my mum, my dad, my granddad, and Jaron Calvin for the graphics and the and the music as always. Um, subscribe to our YouTube if you would. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Um, you can find John over Twitter actually, John F Lyons. Um, for more news, and uh, also we're on uh, Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google Podcasts, etc. Uh, uh, John's book is available. Um, wherever you get your books, it's obviously it's called Joy and Fear, the Beatles, Chicago, uh, the Beatles, Chicago and the 1960s. And uh, John, uh, once again, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Derek. I'll just mention one last thing. And that is, uh, I'm doing uh, actually a speaking tour. Uh, oh. and of course, I don't know if this would be of much use to most of your listeners, but it's in the Chicago area. And yes. it's 60 years of uh, the Beatles. And, oh, wow. uh, Whenever I do these, they've been very successful. We have audiences up to like 100 people showing up, you know. And it's not me, it's the Beatles. They, they yeah. want to hit that, obviously. But uh, at the end of the uh, the talks, I always get a, a question-answer se- uh, session, you know. And one of the questions they always ask me is, who's your favourite Beatle? And I'm kind of disappointed, Derek. You never asked me that. Do you know why I, I, I'm disappointed in myself, to be honest? Who is your favourite Beatle? Well, I'm not going to answer now. Because you do, know, know, do, <laughs> do you know who my favourite Beatle is? Have a guess. Oh, looking at you as I do, you've got to be a Paul McCartney man. Sure. Oh, it's George Harrison. What? Yeah, I love George. Again, it's a George Harrison man. Really? Oh, I, I'm going to say I'm going to say you're a Paul McCartney. Yeah, I, I thought. I love that. Is it is it that obvious? No, I was going to say. Did you say then the book or allude to it in the book? No, no, I probably should have done. No, uh, when people ask me, I always say to them. Um, you know, I can't, because the Beatles, it was all about the Beatles. It was about all four of them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
And I don't even like much of their solo work. I know people are yeah. going crazy at home now listening to this, but I don't. I'm not really a big solo Beatles man. I'm not really a Paul McCartney solo. There's so much other great stuff out there, you yeah. know. But uh, the, the, it's it's about the four Beatles. So I'm always reluctant to say, but there is something I kind of admire a bit more about Paul McCartney. Not yeah. so much musically, but as a person. And, yeah. uh, you know, that in some ways he he's admirable in the sense that he does try to sort of uh, maintain uh, not just the image, but I think he really generally tries to maintain the ordinary man sort of, uh, yeah. view. you know, he tries to be down to earth. He lived a relatively or has lived a, a relatively not Spartan life, but certainly not an extravagant life. Yeah. And uh, he does, he does care about the world around him. I'm always surprised when I see people that are right wing, you know, yeah. whatever, uh, talk about how much they like the Beatles. They obviously don't know anything about them if they read it. Because if you, uh, you know, if you read anything that the Beatles said all the way through, you know, right up until today, they obviously uh, are very much on the liberal side. Yeah, of, absolutely. Uh, politics. Yeah. And uh, I also admire Paul, but plus Ringo, because I think they've changed uh, people's view of old age. I agree. You know, yeah. When we were young, you know, basically what happened is you retired at 65 and then you died. Yeah. And if you lived on for a year or two, you know, you were stuck in the corner and, you know, the family would ignore you. But there's these two people out there. They're touring. They're creative. They're, you know, making the best of their life. They're enjoying themselves. And I think that they really have been an inspiration in that uh, respect. So, yeah, I I do think uh, I would have to put probably that's fair and fittingly for an episode with an author we had an epilogue at the end and I'm I'm delighted to say uh, John once again thank you very much okay thank you again Derek and everybody else for watching thank you so much and we will chat to you uh, next week take care bye